0: Pastor Logan comes to read God's Word with us now. If you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We will begin in verse 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You bearing witness about yourself, your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Uh, for this glorious passage in which Christ reveals himself as the light of the world. We thank you, Father, that you sent your Son as a light to the nations, that you did not leave this world in darkness, but you sent your Son as the light. And God, I pray that as we explore this passage and dwell on its meaning, that you would once again work in our hearts to behold Christ. Lord, that you would open our eyes even further to see his glory and his beauty and His light, and in beholding him, that we be made like him. So God, would you come and work through the preaching of your word for your glory and your son's exaltation, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church, and it's good to be back with you again. Well, today, as we jump back into our studies of John's Gospel, we are running into a theme that I think actually has become more and more palpable in our own day and age. And that is the theme of light and darkness. If there's anything that I hear repeatedly about the times in which we are living and how it is characterized, it is that they are dark. And I think that is undoubtedly true. These are indeed dark times, and very often they feel as if they're growing darker by the day. While there's some outward reality to that with regards to the times in which we are living, the truth is our times are not all that unique. A cursory glance at history will reveal that. We may look back with fondness on the 20th century, remembering times when parents could let their kids ride their bikes down the street without fear, and remembering a time when the political divide in our country was not at the point of hostility. But yet, at the same time, the 20th century was the bloodiest century on record. And the truth is, we, we may feel like these dark days are a historical exception, but they're not. The world has been dark since the fall, and it will be dark until it is made new in the age to come. This is why in in Galatians 1, Paul calls the age in which we live, the, the entire age prior to glory, he calls it this present evil age. See, the dark ages were not just a particular time in history. They are all of history. And humanity's darkness is what sets up the contrast for the Son of God entering our world. When Christ came, as we have sung about in many different ways this morning, light dawned upon this dark world for the first time since the fall. And John actually began this gospel by introducing us as the readers to this theme. In John 1 9, he said, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And this reality of light is is very much a part of the theological category that we refer to often as, as the already and the not yet. Already the light has dawned on this dark world, but it has not yet risen to its full glory. And When that day comes, darkness will be dispelled from our world forever. But until that great day, there exists an ongoing conflict between darkness and light. And darkness and light now exist together in unrelenting hostility towards one another as we will very much see in our passage today. Today, we're going to continue in the 8th chapter of John's Gospel, and we find ourselves in the middle of this intensifying conflict between Jesus and the unbelieving Jews, between darkness and light. This conflict began back in chapter 5, with the Jews already there seeking to kill Christ. It continued in chapter 7 with their attempts to arrest Him, and it will end in the Lord's timing when their wicked desires do find fulfillment in His bloody execution. But here we get more insight into the issues that were driving this hostility. As Jesus continues to reveal more of His identity, more of His, more of his person, and his, his essential character, He reveals that He is the light, come with the promise of life. And in that, we see the response of the darkness to this claim, as the blindness of the Jewish leadership is just on display. So as we look at this passage today, our outline is going to be simple. We're going to see the nature and the promise of the light and the response of the darkness. And as we walk through this, I hope that you will get a glimpse of the glory of what Christ says about Himself to these Jews. Because this is a remarkable moment, a remarkable statement in redemptive history. And further, I hope that you will see that there are great implications to what He says here for your own lives. As Christians, we are followers of the light. And that actually means something. That actually has weight in our lives, as we will see. So let's, let's look at this, starting with the nature and the promise of the light in verse 12. Look with me at verse 12. It says, again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, in order to feel the weight of this statement, we need to take note of when and where this was made. Because right off the bat, notice that John starts this verse with the resumptive f- formula, Again, Jesus spoke to them. Now, this is actually going back to where Jesus last spoke to them in chapter 7, in verses 37 and 38. Now, if, if you were not here Last week, and you're confused as to why this doesn't tie into the previous section about the adulterous woman, I would urge you to go back and listen to last week's message on the history and reliability of Scripture. As we discussed, that story was not part of the original manuscripts. It was not part of John's writing. And so it was... in, in. intrusion here in these two chapters. So we need to see that verse 12 of chapter 8 is an immediate continuation of verse 52 from chapter 7, which is why we're picking up there. This passage here in chapter 8 very much still has the Feast of the Tabernacles as its background. It's continuing in that context. And the last thing that Jesus had done on the last great day of the feast was to stand up and make a remarkable claim about himself and to issue a promise to those who would believe him. Back in verse 37 and 38 of chapter 7, if if you read that claim very carefully, you're going to notice that it was in parallel fashion to this second great claim that he now makes in chapter 8. In both declarations, he starts with a, with a revelation of his identity, and then he gives a conditional promise to those who receive his claim. So back in chapter 7, he said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, meaning he is the source of the waters of salvation. Here in chapter 8, his claim is that he is the light of the world. Back in chapter 7, he said, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then here in chapter 8, he said, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. These two remarkable statements from Christ are beautifully parallel with one another, both revealing his identity and both issuing a promise To those who accept his claim. And both of them are very much playing off of what was going on at the Feast of the Tabernacles. If you remember last time, we saw how many of the themes of the Old Testament, along with the water drawing ceremony at the feast, shed beautiful light on what Jesus had said. Passages like Isaiah chapter 12. With joy, He will draw water from the wells of salvation. Or Isaiah 55, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. All of it pointing to Christ. All of it finding its fulfillment in Him. Well, here again, we have another theme that comes richly out of the Old Testament and has been on display in the rituals of the festival itself. Now, I want you to notice... Drop down to verse 20 of chapter 8. And I want you to notice where this took place. Look at verse 20. It says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. Now there's a a reason why John points this specific location out to his largely Jewish audience uh, who would understand what he was talking about right away. As you may know, The temple had several courts. If you've been around here for a while, you've heard us talk about this before. But in the center of the temple was the holy place, in which was the temple veil, and behind that was the holy of holies, where the presence of God dwelt. Well, outside of the holy place, you had the the court of the priests. The court of the priests is where the priests would make their their sacrifices that went on day after day after day. Outside of the court of the priests, you had the court of Israel, where the Jewish men could come to worship God. And then outside of that, you had the court of the women. And the court of the women was where the Jewish women could come uh, to get as close as possible to the presence of God uh, to worship Him. And then all around that was the court of the Gentiles. Now inside the court of the women was the treasury. The treasury was there where all the pious Jews, both men and women, could come. There was about 13 receptacles, and they would drop their tithes and offerings for various purposes right there in the court of the women. Well, the reason why that is significant, and the reason why John is pointing that out, is because he, he wants his readers to know that this is the precise location where Jesus made this statement. Because this is the precise location where the ceremony of lights was performed for several nights of the feast. Many sources say for every night of the feast. And much like the water drawing ceremony, the ceremony of lights was, was loaded with symbolism, and it was just a joyous celebration. Inside of the court of the woman, where the treasury was, there was four massive candelabras. They were oil-fed lampstands that were estimated to have been about 75 feet tall. So they were massive. And each night after the sun had set, somebody would climb a ladder to the top of these massive lampstands and they would light them. And these huge flames lit up in each one of them. And it was said that the light from the temple being elevated all over all of Jerusalem would shed its light over the entire city. The light of God's temple could be seen from all over Jerusalem. And after the lighting, a joyful celebration would ensue under the light as music was, was played. And the Mishnah says that Jewish men, described as men of piety and good works, would dance while holding torches in hand and singing songs of praise. And then it says that countless Levites played on harps and lyres and cymbals and trumpets and other musical instruments. And this went on throughout the night under these great lights. It was a celebration of joy under these lights as the temple of God was lit up and could be seen from everywhere. And the symbolism of this was, was multifaceted. Was One, it looked back to the time in which the Jews were in their wilderness wanderings, living in tents and tabernacles. Remember, this is the, the feast of the tabernacles commemorating that time. And it was during that time that they were led by night by God's presence in a pillar of fire. We can read about this in passages such as Exodus 13. It says, The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. And even when they stopped and when they made camp, the the Israelites of old, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire would remain over the tabernacle of God. Numbers chapter 9 says, On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle and the tent of the testimony. And at evening it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always. The cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. This ceremony very much looked back at the time in which the presence of God appeared to them as fire and was their source of light. But more than that, it also looked forward. It also looked forward to the coming promise of God in the eschatological age, the end of time when He Himself would be the light for His people, spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 60 says, The day is coming when the sun shall no more be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord, Yahweh, will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. See, this prophecy from Isaiah was looking towards the great day when God will dwell with His people with finality, and in such will be their everlasting light. And the Jews, in anticipation of that great day, were celebrating. That's what this celebration was about, looking back, looking forward. And they simply understood God to be their light. This was common vernacular for the Jews. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? But understanding all of that, as the temple was lit up with a brightness so bright that it could be seen all over Jerusalem, being reminded them of His faithfulness to their people in times past and His promises yet to come. It was then, after the last night of this celebration, when the ceremony had been ended for the final time, the light was snuffed out on the, the lampstands for the year, and it was all fresh in the minds of the people that Jesus speaks to him in the very courtyard where all of this took place, and He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. No doubt, this would have been a shocking and impactful moment for all who heard it. I mean, this is, this is why what we saw back in chapter 7, when the guards were sent to arrest them, and they just could not bring themselves to do it, and all they could do is come back and report to their leaders, no one ever spoke like this man. It was because of things like this. Indeed, no one, no one has. And no one can. No one can say these kinds of things. I mean, just try to imagine anyone else t- saying these things. And, and No matter how highly you respect them, how much you think of them. Imagine if the Apostle Peter got up and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Or the Apostle Paul. Or one of your favorite teachers from our day. No matter how highly you think of somebody or how much you respect them, if we heard anyone else say this, we would say blasphemy. Or we would at least think they've lost their minds. But we get so used to the marvelous things that Jesus said about himself that we forget how weighty they truly are. No one else could say these things. But here he is before the Jews, declaring himself to be the light of the world. Now this is, this is actually the second of seven I am statements made in this gospel. The first one we saw back in chapter 6 where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And there are actually still five more to come. And remember, in each one of these I am statements... Jesus is revealing more of who He is as God in the flesh. As God in the flesh. You see, here Jesus is saying that He is the God who led the Israelites around in a flame of fire through the wilderness, as we see explicitly stated in Jude 5. And He is saying that He is the one who will one day dwell with His people and be their everlasting light. For all of eternity. In fact it's the Apostle John who brings this out. In Revelation 21 he says. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. In Christ all of this is fulfilled. He is the fulfillment of everything that they were celebrating. At the Feast of Tabernacles. He is the The light of the world. But that truth not only had past implications and future implications for them, it also had present implications. And the way that Jesus has phrased this and the the timing of this statement makes it clear that there is actually another promise of the Old Testament playing into this. And that is the messianic promise of Isaiah. If you remember, the last thing that the Pharisees said back in chapter 7 was a challenge to Nicodemus. You all remember that? When Nicodemus spoke up and advocated for a fair hearing for Christ, they irrationally just fired back at him and said, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. You remember that? Well, this being the very next thing that Jesus says... I believe it was also issued as a corrective to those Pharisees, because there's a passage that they had gravely overlooked in their challenge to Nicodemus. Listen with fresh ears to Isaiah chapter nine, a text that we typically quote "around Christmas time." says this it says, "But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish." Oh, but there is. There is a great light that has shone upon them. And Isaiah prophesied it. In just a few verses later, you read, For unto us a child is given, a son is born, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Speaking of the Messiah to come. And then later in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, God says of this Son, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. All of this is playing into this marvelous statement here where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus here again emphasizes that his ministry, his purposes, his salvation is not just for the Jews, but for the world, for the nations. As God said in Isaiah, to the ends of the earth, it is Christ. Christ for all nations. He is the only true source of life, and he's the only true source of light in this dark world. And as such, he promises that whoever follows him Will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, when Jesus talks about walking in darkness, certainly that has moral implications, ethical implications to it. Uh, to walk in darkness most definitely speaks of morality, as we've already seen in John chapter 3. But significantly, it also has spiritual implications. To walk in darkness is to live your life estranged from God, estranged from the light. God is the light. As John says in 1 John 1, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If you are in darkness, you do not know Him. Or said conversely, if you do not know Him, you are walking in darkness. So to walk in darkness is to walk in the absence of, of God, is the absence of all that is good and holy and right. And Jesus Christ, as the light, is all that is good and holy and right. And it is in Him, His, his person, as light, who has shown in this dark world, who has offered Himself as salvation for all. Because He is the light of life, spiritual life, eternal life. We talked about this in the the prologue, but in in the same way that physical light, the physical light of the sun is the source of physical life here on earth, without the sun's light you have no life, in the same way Christ as the eternal light is the source of eternal life. Spiritual light gives spiritual life, and those who follow Him have it. They have the light of life. He is the light of life. They have Him, and they will not walk in darkness because they can see. Their eyes have been opened. The truth is, the only people in this world who are not groping around in the darkness are those who have come to Christ, are those who have come to the light. It is they and they alone who know who God is, who understand this world and where it is going, and who understand mankind and mankind's plight and mankind's true need. Only the Christian understands this. And Christian, the reality is this has demands upon you. If you have come to the light, you must live as the light. You must follow the light. As Paul said in Ephesians 5, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead... Expose them. As those who have come to the light, you are to follow that light. And that's what you are, Christian. You are a follower. You are a follower of the light. And you are to walk in this world in the same manner in which He walked, pursuing all that is good and right and true and bearing witness to the true light, which is exactly what Jesus is doing here. But as you do, remember that darkness hates the light. It does. And it always will. And we see that clearly here with the Pharisees. Even though Christ is here offering them life, their response shows that they are in absolute darkness. Look how they respond. Look at verse 13. It says, So the Pharisees said to them, said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Now, after that amazing statement that he makes in the court of the women, what a ridiculous and mundane response. I mean, Jesus just made one of the most beautiful claims in all of history, and all they could come up with was a legal objection, which is actually an issue that Jesus has already dealt with once with them. These men are in utter darkness. That's the reality. And what the Pharisees are doing here is picking back up on what Jesus said to them using His own language back in chapter 5. And they're attempting to turn it on Him. In chapter 5, verse 31, Jesus said in Jerusalem to the Pharisees, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Meaning valid. These leaders clearly being the same group he was speaking to back then, take these words and try to use them against him in order to invalidate his claim on a legal technicality. Because as Jesus will say here in a minute, the law required two or more witnesses to establish a claim. Now, Jesus has already addressed this issue back in chapter 5 by marshaling out all of the witnesses that could testify to who he is. If you remember, he he referenced John the Baptist, he referenced the very miracles that he was performing, most significantly he referenced the Father, but he also referenced the Scriptures and even Moses, all of them bearing witness to who he is. So these guys have already heard this, they know this, but here at the feast, they hear him make claims about himself, and instead of considering them, they're simply trying to trip him up. And Jesus' response to them sheds light on the darkness of their reasoning. Look what he says in verse 14. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I've come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. Now, Jesus is not here contradicting what he said back in chapter 5 when he said, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. His point back there is not that if he bears witness about himself, then he is a liar, or that his testimony is some kind of falsehood. It was simply that his testimony alone was not enough to validate it according to the law. But even the law itself is not saying that a singular testimony is never true. That's, that's obvious just that it is not attested to. And Jesus was simply telling these guys that his testimony about himself is true, even if it was alone, which it wasn't, because he has a knowledge that they do not have. He knows where he's from, and he knows where he's going. He is from God, and he is returning to God. And this is the theme that just keeps coming up in this gospel. The Jews assumed him to be Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth of Galilee, when in rea- reality he is Jesus, the son of God sent from heaven. And this, this truth was, was not obscured to them. It was on display. They just refused to see it because they loved the darkness rather than the light. Exactly as we see in John 3. The light has come into this world, and people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. That's exactly what's going on here with the Pharisees. The light was standing before them, declaring to be the light, but they loved the darkness. That's why Jesus says, you judge according to the flesh. By the desires and limited perspective of your own flesh, you are judging. Rather than an honest seeking of the truth, and the truth of, of who Christ is, the truth of what the scriptures say about Him, the truth of what the miracles could mean that were undeniable and on full display, the truth of even what they'd already heard from John the Baptist, rather than seeking out the truth, they judged Him by the flesh. Because here is the reality. If they accepted the truth that was before them, it would indict them. And they knew it. The problem for them was not evidence. And it never is. The problem for them is pride. They will not admit that they have got it wrong and that they need a Savior. That they need Him in order to receive eternal life. As Jesus has said in many ways and many forms. They thought they could do it on their own. But to come to the light would expose their darkness. It would expose their need. And that's the same reason why people don't come to Jesus today. It's not a lack of evidence. It's pride, always. It is human pride. As natural humans, we have a problem with self. We are are happy to admit that we live in a dark world, that this world is broken. Everyone can see that. But we see it as out there. And and apart from Christ, we only see ourselves as victims of it. The problem is the world. But few understand that the darkness of this world is not an out there problem. It's an in here problem. Apart from Christ, we are the darkness of this world. And the only way to escape the darkness of ourselves is to come to the light and to be exposed. But these Pharisees will not do that. Rather, they judge Jesus according to the flesh. In contrast, Jesus says to them, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Now when Jesus says, I judge no one, obviously this is not an absolute statement. It's meant to be taken in contrast to the way they judge. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> Helpful. <clears throat> when Jesus says, I judge no one, it is meant to be taken in contrast to the way they judge. They judge according to the flesh. Jesus does not judge in that manner. But he's already told them back in chapter 5 that all judgment has already been given to him by the Father. So he's going to judge. And he's reiterating that here. He says, even if I do judge, my judgment is true because he and the Father are one. And he does nothing apart from the Father. His judgment is the judgment of God. As he told them, There is coming a day when the dead will rise and will face Him in judgment. The the fact is, every single person who has ever lived will not find themselves standing before a vague, undefined being called God. They will specifically find themselves standing before the Son. They will find themselves standing before the God-man, Jesus Christ, on that great day who will judge them with righteous judgment, and will issue final and irreversible and eternal verdicts on that day. And this is is part of what it means for Jesus to be the light of the world. Light exposes darkness, and He is the one who dwells in unapproachable light And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, when Jesus returns, He will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Jesus, as the light, is going to reveal and expose all. Everything. Even down to the motives of of the heart. And not one man and not one motive will be missed. And if you understand that and you do not think you need a Savior, you are not a thinking person. Your mind has been darkened. Brothers and sisters, this is why there's so much urgency to the gospel. Judgment is coming. Spurgeon said it well when he said, If sinners be damned, at least least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned or unprayed for. There's urgency to the gospel. We must realize that. Just the other night, our Acts 1-8 ministry went out to share the gospel with people on the streets here in Kansas City. And I heard that one of our brothers engaged a homosexual couple coming toward him who had a little child with them. And he asked them if he could speak with them about Jesus. And at the mention of his name, they literally ran away, covering the child's ears. Because darkness hates light. But as they ran away, our brother called out behind them, But you are going to meet him one day. You will. That's right. Praise God. Let them not go without warning. That is not unloving. That is the most loving thing you can do for them. Even if they flee from the light, it is mercy to tell them the truth, to tell them what is coming. And that's what Jesus is doing, even here with these Pharisees. He's not issuing a defense because he needs to defend himself, but to point them to the truth of who he is, bearing witness to who he is, so that all who would willingly come to the light may be saved. Look what he says, verse 17. It says, In your law it's written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. He is bearing witness. And the Father bearing witness about him, this is shorthand for what he already said back in chapter 5. Because all of those witnesses that he mentioned, that he brought up in that context, We're actually the Father's witness. John the Baptist, it was said in the very first chapter of the gospel, John was a man sent by God. He came to bear witness about the light. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. John was sent by God as his witness. The Scripture, of course, is God's witness because it is His Word. All of Scripture is God's Word and bears witness to Christ. The works that Jesus performed, Jesus has told them over and over, I am working the Father's works. These are the works that the Father gave me to do. So even the miracles themselves, was the Father testifying to who Christ is? And of course, even Moses, as the servant of God, would bore witness to Christ and wrote of His coming in Deuteronomy. The Father's testimony to who His Son was, was rich. And that's, that's not even to mention the moment that his voice came down from heaven when Jesus was baptized, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But again, Jesus had already covered that with these guys. But the extent of their unbelief and the depth of their darkness just simply knew no end. Look at their response. They said to him, Therefore, where is your Father? They simply would not believe. And remember, these are are the top, most respected religious leaders in all of Judaism. These are the the men of God, so to speak, of the people of Israel. Those who claimed to know God and lived in zeal for Him and were admired by the people for it. But as Paul says in Romans 10, they had a zeal for God, but it was not according to knowledge. It was a zeal without knowledge. They did not know God. And they're putting that on display here. Where is your father? They're speaking of the God that they claim to serve. And Jesus unequivocally declares their status before God. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. You see, with the arrival of Christ, with the dawning of light into this dark world, the litmus test of whether or not one knows God is whether or not they know the Son. If you do not know the Son, you do not know the Father. If you do not have the Son, you do not have the Father. But conversely, if you do know the Son, then you know the Father also. And the Jews who truly knew God recognized the Son when He came. They did. You see this even at the birth of Christ with Simeon at the temple when he looks at the baby Jesus and he says, My eyes have seen your salvation, a light to the Gentiles. But these men couldn't see what Simeon saw because they did not know God. And more, more than anything, all they could feel towards Christ was hatred and a desire to kill him, a desire to snuff out the light before them. But John continues to show us how much that was not in their control. Look at verse 20. It says, These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John gives us this detail of where Jesus was, not only for the backdrop of the ceremony of the lights, but also to show us just how in charge of everything God is. They wanted Him dead. And here He is in the court of the women, in the treasury. He's in one of the inner courts with temple guards everywhere. If there was not some supernatural overruling activity going on, there is no way that Jesus could have escaped here. But again, John doesn't give us details on how that happened other than to say His hour had not yet come. God is in control. The darkness desperately wanted to snuff out the light. But as John said from the beginning, John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness is not it. The darkness could not snuff out this light. And even the moment when they thought they achieved that end, when they executed Christ in the Father's timing, It was actually the opposite effect. God was using their murderous plot to achieve his redemptive purposes and to send the light of Christ to the ends of the earth. As Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all peoples to myself because he came as a light for the nations, a light for the world. He is the light of the world. It's a remarkable passage of Scripture. As we close, I just want to finish our time with just two quick closing exhortations as we think about this passage. One is to remember why it is that you see what others do not see. Think not that you see the truth of who Christ is because you are more logical, or you are more moral, or you are wiser than those who don't. You are not. All of us We're born blind and dead in our sins. The only difference is grace. It is that God had mercy upon us. When you first heard and believed the gospel, your belief was the work of God, the work of grace upon your heart. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God did that. Not you. So remember where you have come from. And when you see the darkness of this world and are rightly disgusted by it, remember, if not for the grace of God, there go I. But secondly... As Jesus says here, to be a Christian is to be a follower. A follower of the light. And yes, that has moral implications to it as we discussed, but it also has missional implications to it. Jesus said to his followers in Matthew, you are the light of the world. Not because we are the source of light, but because we are a reflective light. We are to be a people who reflect the light of Christ in this world. The light to the world now shines through us as we reflect the source, as we reflect who Christ is. And the truth is, we alone have the message of salvation. We have the light of life. And we are to bring that message to a lost and dying world. The kingdom grows by the advancement of the gospel. Don't hide your light under a basket, but let it shine that others may see and live. The darkness is temporary. The true light is is coming. This world is passing away. We are all going to encounter Christ sooner than we realize. But see to it that we let not others encounter Him having not heard of the good news of what Christ has done for guilty sinners, having paid sin's penalty on the cross in issuing forgiveness to all who believe, may we go forth proclaiming that message as lights in this very dark world. Let's pray. Father, thank you that light has dawned in the coming of your Son. Thank you, Father, that you had mercy upon us in his sending. Thank you that he came and bore testimony to who he is and that you bore testimony to who he is, that the world may see and know that he is the light. God, I pray that you would help us to behold him all the more that we would continue to be conformed to His image, and in being conformed, Lord, that we would reflect Christ to this lost and dying world, that we would have the courage and strength to open our mouths and speak of Him, to speak of what He's done on the cross, to speak of forgiveness that can be found in Him, to speak of His coming return and the judgment that awaits every soul. Give us the courage, Lord, to speak of these realities while we still have breath in this life. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for Christ. May it advance for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand, let's close.